We are glad that you are listening to this audio recording produced by All Things New Church of Birmingham, Alabama. For more information regarding the ministries of All Things New Church, please visit us online at www.allthingsnew.us. If you have a Bible, there are some in the pew. If you want to follow along, you can. If, if, if you would rather not, you don't, you don't have to. But look with me at Micah chapter 5, this passage of Scripture that Jill read to us. Now, this is a prophecy. I was struck by this as Jill was reading. I thought, it's quite astounding. This was a prophecy uttered 2,700 years ago. I mean, 700 years before Christ. You know, we, we have the Alamo in Texas. It's got a historical marker. But, you know, just, <laughs> and it, that doesn't come anywhere near 20. This is a very old very ancient prophecy that, that was spoken in this kind of corner of the earth that, you know, I mean, can you wrap your mind around that, that we just sat and listened to this? And let's start in verse 1, and we're going to just walk fairly quickly through Micah chapter 5, verse 1, and try to get a sense for what it must have been like when this was originally spoken, those, those millennia ago. Micah chapter 5, verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against you. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Now your Bible may translate the first part of this verse a little differently. It's very difficult to translate this from its original language of Hebrew. We're... we're we have lots of debate about which way it should go, but we don't debate the overall meaning. The overall meaning is clear. This is a humiliating scene. This is the capital of a country that is being debased. I mean, it's being humiliated. It's, it's leader, it's ruler, which isn't even a king anymore. It's fallen into such a state of kind of turmoil is being slapped on the cheek. Now, in an oriental culture, in an honor-shame culture, this is the most humiliating thing you could do to a leader. Now, that's the scene. That's verse 1. There's a siege going on, and the, the, the king-type figure, who's not even a king, he's, he's this kind of judge, is being struck on the cheek. This is absolute humiliation and embarrassment and weakness and defeat. And this is what's going on when we get to verse 2. This is the country of Israel, God's chosen people who have rebelled so persistently and so consistently have they been defiant against God, their king. They've entered into an agreement with God that they would honor him and they have been so defiant in breaking that agreement, it's called a covenant, that God has said, now if you keep this up, I'm going to punish you. And he kept telling them that and telling them that and telling them that. And at one point in the scriptures, he says, my heart is torn within me. I don't want to hand you over. I don't want to punish you. I don't want to do this. But finally, Israel is so persistent. He punishes them. It says in verse two, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient days. You see, the creator God, the one 
true God of the universe, made a once and for all promise to Israel that through Israel, this one true God would solve the problems of the world, would set everything right again. He would provide a remedy. And notice the nature of his solution. From you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one. God's solution is not technology, right? It's not education. His solution is a person, a ruler whose origin is from old, from ancient days. Now, he's saying, look, this ruler that I'm going to send through Israel, he, he does not begin to exist the moment he's born. In Bethlehem, he does not begin to exist. He has always existed. That's what the prophecy is saying. I will send a ruler who has been around forever. Now, this ruler is going to come from Bethlehem. And you need to remember this for what comes up in Luke. And I'll point it out again in just a moment. But look how Bethlehem is described as an obscure, small insignificant place that's not even big enough to register as a dot on the map. Then look at verse 3. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Now again, we're brought back to this idea of pain and suffering and humiliation. This idea that Israel has so violated their covenant with God, they've been so belligerent in their betrayal of God that God is going to give them up. He's going to hand them over. He's going to turn them over to the power of their enemies because of their apostasy, because of Israel's persistent refusal to do the right thing. Hypocrites should never, ever think that they can escape judgment from God. Now, there will come a day, though. That's the first word of verse 2. But there will come a day when God's once-for-all solution happens. Again, notice what form the solution takes. In verse 3, until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. It's very clear from this 2,700-year-old document That God is saying, I'm going to provide a solution in the form, not of a movement, not of a religion, but of a person. A person that is real flesh and blood that will be birthed. God's solution to the problem of the world is a person. And when he is born, look at at the end of verse 3. The rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Now, we don't have time to go into all of this, but what's going on here is the return that he's talking about is not a physical return to the land of Israel. It's a conversion, a turning around. The the punishment is going to be so devastating for Israel that he says there will come a time, though, when those that are left, will convert. They'll have a turning of their hearts back into a right relationship with God. And there's more. Verse 4. And he will stand and shepherd his flock in the name of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Here we see that God's solution to the problem that this world has is not just any old person. It's a person who can only be rightly characterized as the good shepherd. He will shepherd 
his flock. And notice, how much power does the one creator God of the universe have? That is how much strength and power this shepherd will exercise on behalf of his flock. Do you see how this shepherd is being deliberately um, kind of set in distinction against the ruler that has been slapped in verse 1? There's coming a ruler who will not go through this kind of humiliation forever. And then in the end of, and then in verse, the end of verse four, they will dwell secure from now. He, for now he will be great to the ends of the earth. Verse five, and he shall be their peace. Now, I was telling you that this was originally spoken 2,700 years ago in a different language entirely. The language was Hebrew. And for those of you who've been coming to all things new for a while, do you have any idea what the Hebrew word is for peace? Shalom. He will be their shalom. One of the unfortunate um, side effects of translation is that to us, peace often means merely the absence of conflict, right? I want peace. That's all I want. I want. And we mean by that, I want to stop fighting with X, Y, Z. But shalom is a, it's a much juicier word than that. Okay. It's a much thicker word than the absence of Conflict. It's about delight and flourishing throughout the entire web of relationships that constitute you as a human being. It's delight and flourishing in your relationships with other humans, your relationship with your creator and your relationship with creation, with nature and culture. These three relationships, God, humans and creation, these shalom is when these three relationships are thriving. When there's delight in these things. Who wouldn't want that, right? Who doesn't want this powerful shepherding figure to not just extend peace, but to embody shalom and to offer that to all of his followers? Who wouldn't want this kind of gift? So we jump forward 700 years to the passage that John read to us out of Luke chapter 1. You'll look there with me. Now, there's so much in this passage that we, we don't have time to, to, to feast on, on every dish that it offers up to us. Let me draw your attention to the heart of these verses. It's Luke chapter 1, verse 50. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Now, look, to be fair to Israel, all of us are sinful, rebellious people. All of us are like Israel. All of us have defied our creator. All of us have shaken our fist in his face and said, we're going our own way. All of us have bowed to the altar of ourselves. All of us fail. We, we all sin against God in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds, in the things we do, in the things we leave undone. We do not love God with our whole heart and we do not love our neighbors like we love ourselves. All of us, like Israel, are in desperate need of mercy. And through Christ... God's mercy is available to all if we fear God. 
That's the heart of this passage. It's the concept that sits right at the center, not only of Mary's song, which is called the Magnificat, but it's the concept that sits right at the center of this elegant exchange between Elizabeth and her niece, Mary. Who can receive the peace, the shalom that God offers through his Messiah? Who can receive it? The one who fears God, the one who is meek and humble. Let me just show you a couple of ways this jumps out of the passage. Look at verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. Now, Mary has just learned that she is Theotokos, a Greek word, the bearer of God. Okay, she's just been told God himself has taken up flesh in her womb. And so she goes as fast as she can, about 70 miles, which hastily done in that area of the world at that time was three to four days. I I say that because I want you to notice how Luke, who wrote this, is an incredible author. He sums up three to four days worth of journey in one verse, verse 39. And then in verses 40 through 45, like, in it, like, like a great director, he expands time for a moment. It's almost like an aria in an opera where all of a sudden everything stops and we, we, we get focused in on one millisecond of action. And then we meditate on it for a long period of time because Luke, the author, wants you to understand something. He, in fact, records the greeting that Mary gives to Elizabeth three times in the next couple of verses. Look at verse 40. He entered the house of Zechariah. She entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Time number one. Number two. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, that's the second time. Jump down to verse 44. When the sound of your greeting came to my ears. Look, Luke is trying to draw your attention. In fact, what he's done, as far as literature is concerned, it's called an inclusio. It's where he says something here, says something else, and then says the first thing again. And it forms kind of um, a bracket. But really, it forms an arrow pointing at that center thing. Now, I I say all of that to to say this to you. Mary and Elizabeth lived in a very different culture than we live in. They lived in the Middle East. And typical Middle Eastern relationships were always charged by issues of honor and shame. Have you read the book or seen the movie Shogun? There's this awful scene at one point where one of the um, village people looks at at the samurai when he should not look at him, and immediately the samurai cuts his head off. And nobody is bothered by it. In fact, the whole society has built so much on honor shame that that had to happen in order for this culture to perpetuate itself. Now, it wasn't quite that brutal here, but that is an oriental kind of whole matrix of honor shame. The same thing goes on today in Middle Eastern peasant culture. In Middle Eastern peasant culture, greetings were very regulated. 
And the basic rule of thumb for meeting someone and saying hi to them was that the inferior, the younger person always greets the older. The lesser greets the greater. The servant travels to the master. So that's why Luke tells us Mary arose and went to Elizabeth because Elizabeth is clearly the superior here. She's older. She's her aunt. She's a daughter of Aaron. Now, in that culture, that's like royalty, okay? She's married to a priest. All of these things add up. If you and I were reading this and we lived in the Middle East in a, in a peasant community today, we would have gotten to this point of reading through Luke 1, gotten to this point. We would have all known it's Mary's job to go to Elizabeth's house and it's Mary's job to enter Elizabeth's house and greet her. It is not Elizabeth's job to come out to the doorstep and greet Mary. Okay, this is an honor shame culture. So when we read in verse 40, she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth Everything is right. That's exactly what is supposed to happen. And then a cultural surprise occurs. Verse 42. And she, Elizabeth, after Mary greeted her, Elizabeth exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Now this is highly unusual. It breaks all of the rules of an oriental culture for greeting. Elizabeth is clearly the superior, but she clearly places herself in the servant's role. She bestows honor on her guest when she recognizes that her guest has Christ in her womb. Suddenly the tables have turned. In fact, she had a whole number of words she could have chosen to say blessed. But she chose the word that is used when an inferior recognizes the advanced status of a superior. So Elizabeth does this unheard of thing. She puts herself in the role of servant to Mary. And she lifts Mary up. And then look what she says in verse 43. She goes even further. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Notice she submits herself to an unborn baby, a fetus. She calls this baby in a womb, my Lord. She swears fealty to this baby. And and notice right before, why is it granted to me? That you would come and visit me. She recognizes that she's not even remotely worthy to be visited by this guest. Now, again, in a Middle Eastern culture, this is a clear indication of a reversal of status. And we could go on through the passage. And these things are happening all over the passage. They're going off like fireworks throughout it. But what I want you to see is that that Elizabeth's Humility is what stands out like a neon sign. In other words, Elizabeth illustrates what Mary said in verse 50. When Mary sang in verse 50, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Do you see that Elizabeth is the embodiment of that? 
Who has access to God? Who receives his peace? Those who fear him. Elizabeth is showing us that a relationship with God is not a casual affair. Sometimes we treat God as if he was just a neighbor, a friendly neighbor that we go over for. But do you see how even God in the form of a fetus has shattered centuries and millennia of cultural rules that, by the way, still exist today in the exact same form in that area of the world. To have a relationship with God calls for a profound level of respect. After all, he's the creator. He is responsible for you and I being a part of his creation. Listen to how another part of the Bible puts it. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2. This is the one on whom I will look, says God, the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Who can receive Christ in his kingdom? Who can receive the shalom, the peace of Christ? The person who is humble and meek. Who receives mercy from God and forgiveness for their sins? The person who fears God. In whose heart will Christ be birthed anew this Christmas with power and grace? The humble and meek and fearful person. But it's not just Elizabeth that shows us this. This teaching comes out throughout Mary's song, the Magnificat. Look at verse 46. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on what? The humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Now, let's be honest. In this community that we live in. It is very easy. To develop the attitude that much is owed to me. I'm shameful, I mean, even to think about the ways this comes out in my heart. A little over a week ago, Janelle and I went to eat at the Outback. And I was struck, it's just a little bit down 280. I was struck of how prideful I looked around me. You know, the farther down 280 you go, there is a pronounced change in the way people dress and the way people look and the way people talk. And we were eating at the Outback, which is not like here. It's kind of like when I used to fly back and forth across the Atlantic Ocean because I lived in England and I would come and preach all the time. And about every third time I'd get bumped to first class. You know what would happen to me when I sat back in the back after sitting in first class? I'm just saying, look, you can't live in a community like this without it somehow at some level getting into you. Now, I'm not saying you're all awful like me. But I'm saying that it is easy to have this attitude that you know, that kind of shows up in unexpected places where we even risk treating God that way. Like he owes us. Like he's some friend or a neighbor that we can just joke with and negotiate with. Whether than the almighty creator. And Mary understands the difference. And she recognizes the honor given to her. For God to be involved in her life. 
It humbles her to the quick. This sense of privilege that she has that God is in her life. She lacks any hint of feeling like she deserves it. And it spills over into this waterfall of praise and gratitude. Look at verse 49. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Look, God does powerful things for the humble and the meek and those who fear him. In fact, it's not too strong of a statement to say that meekness and humility and the fear of God is a prerequisite for being blessed by God. Drop down to verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Look, there are two groups of people in these verses. The proud and the humble. Or the meek, those who fear God. Now get this. To the humble... God is Savior. But to the proud, in these verses, he's a fierce warrior. Which face of God do you want? Which mode of God do you need to encounter? The proud? These are the people that are self-confident. They trust in their own strength. They are not dependent on God because God helps those who help themselves. They don't need him, in other words. They don't need God's assistance. In verses 52 and 53, the proud are characterized as mighty and rich. In contrast to humble and needy. If we were to keep reading through Luke's gospel, we would begin to pick up that Luke has a very full-fledged characterization of the proud, the mighty, the rich. In Luke's gospel, they are the people who grab for social respect. They're people who grasp positions of honor. There are people who exclude the less fortunate and the less socially acceptable from their circles of kinship and pleasure. They're the people who enjoy the power That accompanies privileged status. These are the people in Luke's gospel. That he clearly holds up as being deluded by their wealth and their power and their status. Into thinking that they are in control of their life. But look how God, the fierce warrior, deals with these people. He scatters the proud. In verse 51, he brings down the powerful in verse 52. He sends the rich away empty in verse 53. But over against the proud. Oh, look what he does with the lowly and the humble. He lifts up the humble in verse 52. He fills the hungry with good things in verse 53. He helps and shows mercy to his servants in verse 54. 
And notice what Mary says in verse 55. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. In other words, God has always acted this way. This has always been his value system. Remember Micah chapter 5 verse 2. O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are big and mighty and rich. No. Who gets the privilege of the Christ being birthed in her? Zion? Jerusalem? The capital city? The stronghold? No, the city that's not even on the map. When Samuel went to Jesse's sons to pick out the king of Israel. Who did he pick? The one they didn't even invite to the meeting. Because he was the littlest brother. When was the last time in scripture a baby jumped in a womb? When Jacob and Esau were in the womb of their mother, Rebecca. And when they jumped right after that, a prophecy was given that the younger of the twins will rule over the older. God has always picked the small, the despised, the little brother, the one not invited to the party, the city that doesn't show up on the map. God has always drawn near to the meek and lowly and humble. And so he picks a teenage girl in Bethlehem. And when Elizabeth realizes this, she throws out the window all of the cultural trappings of status. You see, look at verse 42. She exclaimed with a loud voice, blessed are you among women. That's the first time Elizabeth blesses Mary. But she blesses her a second time in verse 45. And this time she doesn't use the second person. She uses third person. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. What is Elizabeth doing here? Elizabeth is saying, Mary, not only are you blessed, but everybody who humbles himself like you do. Blessed is she. See, she expands. She goes from second person to third person. She opens the scope of God's blessing to everyone who is so humble, they will believe God. If you do not believe in God, there is a very good chance it's because of pride. If you do not believe, Elizabeth is saying, Elizabeth is comparing Mary to her own husband. If we had time to read Luke chapter 1, right? When God told her husband, Elizabeth's husband, Zechariah, that a great thing was going to happen to him, he did not believe it. And Elizabeth is saying, oh Mary, you were humble and you believed. And blessed is everyone who does this. And God right now, through the words of Elizabeth, God is speaking to you. Right now, the creator of the universe is speaking to us in this room. And he is inviting you and me, like Mary, to receive Christ into our lives. Only if we are humble. Christ is near. Just a few more days until Christmas. He is near. Will you humble yourself before him? Do you have the humility to believe him? Do you have the humility that 
results in a cascading waterfall of gratitude and praise? Do you have the humility to repent over the sins in your life? In just a few more days, we are going to celebrate the birth of Christ. But listen, you can celebrate so much more than something that has only happened and can never happen again. You can celebrate something much more intimate, much more personal than that. You can celebrate his birth in your own life. If you would climb down off your high horse and repent and be humble and believe and give him thanks and rejoice. And if you do, It will not be the warrior God that comes into your heart. It will be our Savior who is Shalom. He will come into your heart. And if Christ comes into your heart, peace comes into your heart. Let's pray.